there's is it on? No, I thought I turned it on. I turned on one maybe. There we go, I turned on the wrong one. <laughs> There's a story of a bear in this talk tonight. <laughs> I thought Bonte would be really happy to hear that. <laughs> but it's not a talk about bears, and you're going to have to wait. Maybe that will keep you awake, waiting for the bear story. <laughs> Recently, I was reading uh, somebody, something that was talking about Dogen, the great um, Zen master from centuries ago, a while. It's been a while. And um, he's very famous. And um, my sense of him, I don't know a ton about him, but my sense of him is that he's like, well, this is my sense of all these old Zen masters, is they're kind of these fierce um, that's my perception. It might be a distorted perception, but <laughs> that they're kind of fierce. And um, it's said that he said at one point that the purpose of practice is to develop a tender heart. I thought that was a great um, phrase to come from at least somebody who has I per- perceived as kind of this macho, fierce guy. Um, Tonight I'm going to be talking about the practices of the Brahma Viharas or the practice of the different flavors of love. And, and I started out with that story to reassure all of you, any of you that are concerned that metta and all of this might be a little too mushy for you. Well, if Dogen goes for it, I think uh, it's, it's going to be okay. <laughs> so mostly I'm going to talk about metta and compassion tonight. Um, there's, there, I'll be bringing in equanimity and maybe just a teeny bit of mudita. So there's these four Brahma Viharas. I think you know what they are by now. Um, metta, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. And I think of them as like a package deal and um, a very balanced way to relate to other people, but also to the relate to the experiences of life that arise for us. And they're ways that bring a quality of a flexible and a strong and a gentle heart to meeting the wide range of joys and sorrows that we experience in life. Mindfulness practice, um, Vipassana practice, deconstructs conventional reality as a uh, it was either Bhante or Joseph mentioned that recently. So um, Vipassana meditation is meant to really challenge um, our beliefs and perceptions about this world, about reality, our views about permanence, happiness, self. These are challenged by our practice. Sometimes in this process we may get a little bit more than we asked for. Um, Somebody in interviews today said, I didn't sign up for this. (laughs) When there was a glimpse of a a kind of different understanding or even a a sense of of not knowing. And that it it, it shook her a little bit. 
Several people actually mentioned that today. I think of uh, the importance, one of the importance of metta and compassion in our practice is that it creates an atmosphere where we trust this kind of opening. When our hearts and minds are strong in metta and compassion, it gives us the strength and the courage and the sense of benevolence, you could say, that allows us to drop into these unknown, unexplored places, these new ways of seeing things, just the vast territory within this body, heart, and mind. You've probably realized by now it's just vast. It's incredible that it fits in this small little package here. Um, It's a wilderness inside. And metta and compassion give us the courage and the strength to explore that wilderness. In meeting the um, vicissitudes of life, the joys and the sorrows, we often try to protect our hearts. It's just a little bit too wild for us. It's not always working out like we want it to. And so we um, protect our hearts with aversion and with grasping and with delusion. And we hope this way to feel some sense of control and a little bit less vulnerable in this wild world that changes moment by moment by moment. We hope that we can keep the pleasant and avoid the unpleasant and not see what we don't want to see. This way of living is ultimately not satisfying because the price that we pay for this way of protecting our hearts is a hardening of the heart, a sense of separation, a sense of um, disconnection from life. The Brahma Viharas offer a different um, kind of protection for our hearts a protection that's guided by connection and care, flexibility and warmth. With hearts strong in love and compassion, we're willing to touch life in all of its truth and to be touched by life. So we develop these qualities as... um, uh, Deeply embodied truths, you could say. Not an intellectual understanding, but a visceral understanding that we, that we um, I think I used this expression the other week, that we, we marinate ourselves in, in love and uh, compassion and metta. So how do we develop these qualities, especially metta and compassion, so that they become more of a default for the heart than the defaults of aversion grasping and delusion. One way we can develop them is as um, a conscious practice, the Brahma Vihara practice, or the BVs as we call them, um, and, uh, that we've been doing on Tuesday afternoon. So we have these um, structured ways that we, that we uh, cultivate or bring forth these qualities in our heart and our mind. But there are also qualities that are developed through our Vipassana practice 
and that we can bring to our Vipassana practice. So I'm going to talk mostly um, leaning that way tonight. I'm not going to give a full metta talk or a full compassion talk because I think, well, all of you are experienced students and you've probably um, heard it before. But I'm going to give some reflections on metta and compassion and then um, a lot about how we develop it through our Vipassana practice to develop both these qualities. Greg was mentioning the other day um, the happy monk, Miyatang Sayadaw, the almost 100-year-old monk. Um, and I agree with uh, Greg. He's really the happiest person I've ever met. Um, so at one point, I thought it might be a good idea to ask him why he was so happy, since uh, he was. <laughs> and so I, I asked him, you know, why are you so happy? And it's interesting because I expected um, a kind of wisdomy answer, something about not self or something about equanimity. That's what I really expected to hear back from him. And he said, um, because I have no ill will in my heart. So the absence of ill will is often how metta is described. That's a, a kind of a very traditional way of describing it. He says, I have no ill will in my heart. He says, I have no ill will towards you and I have no ill will towards you, and I have no ill will towards the snake, and I have no ill will towards anyone. <laughs> Another time, um, I told him that he looked so young, and he said, it's because I don't hate anyone. I love everybody. In Burma, uh, metta is called a guardian meditation. There's four guardian meditations. So it's, it's thought of as a protection. You know, a guardian uh, protects us. And it's a protection because it makes the heart both gentle and strong at the same time. And its strength is actually its gentleness. We tend to think of strength as something that's hard like iron we think iron's strong but what's but what's hard is actually inflexible and therefore brittle the soft heart of metta is flexible and inclusive and responsive and that's its strength that it yields it's kind of like the strength of bamboo they say that you know, hurricanes can come through and bamboo just bends, doesn't break. We learn to have hearts that bend, that respond to, to this life. So with metta, I think that we uh, soften and include. We let life in. There's a book that I read that I loved. It was called New World, A New Self, Recovering Our Senses in the 21st Century by Phil Shepard. And he says, to be present in the world means making room for the world to be present in you. That that reminds me of metta. There's this non-separation, right? This fluidity with the world, this yielding with the world. 
somebody named Fran- Jan Frazier said that um, what we do with our practice is we um, learn to present a yielding surface rather than an impenetrable shield. We present to life a yielding surface rather than an impenetrable shield. So again, that sense of the power of the flexibility. One of my favorite authors is Lynn Jensen. He's a uh, Zen teacher from Oregon. And this is an article from uh, Shambhala Sun. A few years after I undertook Buddhist practice, I took the four bodhisattva vows, the first of which is, though beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. All beings, I asked, people, birds, trees, stones, all beings, I was told. How, I asked, do I save all beings? The answer, by letting them in. Though I didn't quite grasp the implications of it at the time, taking the vow to save all beings, I'd committed myself not only to save my family, friends, and the checkout clerk at the grocery store, but my supposed enemies as well, all the people I most feared and disliked in the world. I'd undertaken a practice of total inclusion. That last sentence is, uh, stuck with me. I'd undertaken a practice of total inclusion. We could say that metta is the practice of total inclusion. And in these instances, he's talking about inclusion of, of all kinds of different people, the people we like, the people we don't like, people we know well, people we don't know well. But we can also look at this practice of total inclusion in, in um, what do we include or accept in um, our own being and our own lives and all the experiences that arise Where do we draw the line of what is included and what is exiled? What do we say has to go? What's unacceptable? When we start practice, often a very high percentage of life is deemed unacceptable. My teacher used to say that when she started, 95% of life was unacceptable to her. The way that metta manifests in our vipassana practice is this practice of total inclusion. That we incline towards whatever arises, we incline towards um, meeting it, being there with it, hanging out with it, getting to know it, including it. So what we can see in our practice is that any time we think that we don't have it, that this shouldn't be happening, then we see that this is some form of exclusion in our hearts. And it's a chance to practice kindness, to practice that letting it in or letting it be. So let in whatever you want to exile, whether it's loneliness or impatience or fear or happiness or craving. That's the practice of metta. We're so conditioned in our culture to um, be new and improved. There's a, I, I heard of a, a 
famous motivator named Tony Robbins. I saw this, and some of you know him. I didn't know him, but um, he seems quite extraordinary. (laughs) He said, um, when you set a goal you've committed to, canny, C-A-N-I, constant, never-ending improvement. You've acknowledged the need that all human beings have for constant, never-ending improvement. There is power in the pressure of dissatisfaction, in the tension of temporary discomfort. This is the kind of pain you want in your life. We're kind of steeped in that a little bit. I mean, advertising really definitely tries to head us towards that, that, that we can always be new and improved. And so we come to meditation and we come hoping that meditation will make us new and improved, that uh, it'll make us into a more adequate and presentable person. Usually by hoping that it's going to get rid of something, some traits we don't like within ourselves. This often leads to a kind of aggressive striving that is really turning against ourselves. It's really the opposite of metta. Kind of aggressive striving to um, get rid of these things, uh, these parts, these experiences that we don't like. Maybe there's a, 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 a way that has more of the flavor of metta. And here's... Um, one example. So I uh, used to teach the teen retreat here at IMS. I did it for 18 years. It's my first year I didn't do it. I kind of had to let it go. Um, And there are a lot of volunteers that help out at this retreat. Usually about 20 people come. It's really great. Lots of fun. And so there's this one guy uh, who used to come uh, year after year. His name was Dave, and he was I think kind of young, in his early 30s maybe. And um, he, was, he was from uh, Nashville, Tennessee. This big guy, um, kind of covered with tattoos. Basically, every part of his body you could see was covered with, well, not as front of his face, but everything else covered with tattoos. And so he has his, here I go with my perceptions again, huh? So um, he's kind of, if you took some look at, at him on the street, you'd probably think, well, he's kind of this really tough guy, right? So um, he was talking about being on retreat with me one time. And he says, um, you know how you walk by the board and uh, you hope there'll be a note for you? And then you look and you see somebody else got a note and you want to know why. And why you didn't get a note. And um, he said, sometimes I write notes to myself and put them up there. was so sweet. <laughs> and he says, and then I see it and I'm happy because there's a note from me. So I said, um, I said, what do the notes say? And he said, one note said, you're trying hard enough. <laughs> and what I got from that note was like, you don't have to keep trying to improve yourself. You, know, you don't keep having to keep trying so hard in that kind of way. Like you're really okay. <laughs> I 
metta helps us exchange um, self-judgment and striving and idealism with this just plain willingness to, to be with the truth, to meet the truth with curiosity and connection. Pema Chodron says, loving kindness towards ourselves doesn't mean getting rid of anything. Metta means that we can still be crazy after all these years. We can still be angry after all these years. We can still be timid or jealous or full of feelings of unworthiness. The point is not to try to change ourselves. Meditation practice isn't about throwing, trying to throw ourselves away and become something better. It's about befriending who we already are. The ground of practice is you or me or whoever we are right now, just as we are. That's the ground. That's what we study. That's what we come to know with tremendous curiosity and interest. I think to practice deeply in any form, we need a sense of being held uh, by love or kindness, compassion. It's like the metta or the love lets us know that it's safe and allows us to relax. And when we relax, then we can trust life and we can trust practice. And when we relax, actually, that's when we can see more clearly what the truth is. George Washington Carver was a a man born into slavery in the uh, mid-1800s. And then um, he was, uh, after the Civil War, he was freed along with the other slaves. And he became a great healer, known for his ability to heal with plants. And one time when he was talking about his abilities, he said, All the flowers talk to me, and so do hundreds of little living things in the woods. I learn what I know by watching and loving everything. I learn what I know by watching and loving everything. I like how he he just doesn't say watching. He says watching and loving everything. There's like this sense um, of getting uh, intimate, close and intimate. So the power is both the watching and the loving. Deepama, who we mentioned, I mentioned the first night, she said, From my experience, there is no difference. When you are fully loving, aren't you also mindful? When you are fully mindful, is that not also the essence of love? So love, or however, whatever word you want to use, for some people that word's um, not the best one, love, metta, It seems to be an essential ingredient in mindfulness. Um, Sometimes we could put it under in the RAIN acronym under the A for acceptance. Because love, this practice of total inclusion, it's not that different than acceptance. 
has that same flavor, the willingness to um, include. Now the deepening of metta is the challenge of living uh, with an open heart in the kind of universe that we've taken birth in here. This is a universe that's uh, not always under our control, that changes continually, and as I said, includes many kinds of joys and sorrows. And so the big existential question that we come up against when we're cultivating this open heart is, what do we do with this world of change? What do we do with this world of joy and sorrow? What do we do with this world where people are uncontrollable and fallible? I read recently that somebody recommended that you start practicing with a uh, metta with a rock. He was instructed to carry it around, practice loving it. He, it's that people are so complicated and difficult. The, the rock was non judgmental. <laughs> That's how hard it is to love. <laughs> One Zen teacher, I think it was Sansanimi, said, great love, great sadness. This is when we talk about the deepening of love, when it includes um, all the complexity of other beings and when it includes this life that always changes. So there's no pretense with metta. It's not too fluffy. (laughs) It's um, really grounded. And the equanimity part of metta is this um, heart that can stay open and loving, knowing that uh, things change and that there isn't control, that things have their own natural unfolding. There's a, um, a very short poem by Pablo Neruda, the Chilean poet that uh, I love a lot. It catches, I think, the flavor of this, um, the poignancy, you could say, of the open heart in this world of change. It says, We the mortals touch the metals, the wind, the ocean shores, the stones, knowing they will go on inert or burning. And I was discovering, naming all of these things. It was my destiny to love and say goodbye. It was my destiny to love and to say goodbye. Fue mi destino amar y despedirme. It's all of our destinies to love and to say goodbye. Metta is a unbelievably powerful force. There are stories in the sutras. I'll tell you, I used to not believe these stories at all. There were stories in the sutras like one where... Um, 
the the Buddha's cousin wanted to kill him. Devadatta wanted to take over the Sangha, so he wanted to kill the Buddha. And so he set up this wild um, elephant to come charging down the road where he knew the Buddha would be. And it said that the Buddha, through the power of metta, stopped this elephant from charging. And I used to hear that story and say, well, it's kind of metaphorical, probably. It, it, it can't really be true. But then I read this book, and I started to wonder. It's a book called Kinship with All Life by J. Allen Boone. It was written in the 1950s, I believe. It's a great book. Um, it's about, uh, it started out with um, the author having to take care of a, a, a movie star dog. I don't remember what, it wasn't Lassie, it was somebody before that, I think. <laughs> and um, then all of his um, experience with relating with um, different animals with an attitude of metta and um, what would happen in these relationships. The last chapter, he has a friendship with a fly. Freddy the fly. It's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, maybe you have to work up to it, but um, (laughs) 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 like he could summon Freddy the fly and he would come, but only if you had metta in your heart, he wouldn't come. So if people came to see Freddy the fly and they they just wanted a stunt, Freddy wouldn't come. It's great. But the story I'm going to tell you about is um, there's a chapter in the book about a woman named Grace Wiley. And apparently in the 1940s, she had a zoo for happiness. It was called the Zoo for Happiness. And it was for unwanted snakes. It was for snakes with bad reputations um, that nobody wanted. And so she would take them in and she would uh, tame them. She called it gentling them. She had a gentling room where people could watch her work with the snakes. So she would get like a snake coming in. And um, so the one being described here is, uh, oh, so before the snake comes in, she has two sticks and each of them are three feet long and one is um, padded and that's the petting stick. And then the other one, um, what's the other one for? Oh, to stop and push away snakes if they try to strike so this big box is wheeled into the room and it says um, that when she gave the signal then the big snake would come out and uh, usually they were pretty um, upset when they got out it said as the snake hits the table there is a flash of movement almost too fast for the eyes to follow the swift coiling of its body into a defense or attack position The big fellow from Texas is ready to fight anyone or anything for survival. But to his obvious astonishment and bewilderment, there is nothing to fight. There is no moving target to strike. Only the bare walls and motionless woman facing him. The snake's head darts apprehensively in all directions, trying to discover from which direction trouble is going to come. His tail rattles furious warnings, but nothing happens, nothing at all. Why does Miss Wiley not do something with the sticks in her hands? Why does the snake, with all its noise and threatenings, not take a pra- at least a practice lunge at Miss Wiley with its poison fangs? The truth is that Miss Riley has been doing a most important something to the big snake ever since it came sliding out of the box. 
but you could not tell she was doing it because it was entirely mental. What was really happening was not just the outward meeting of a woman and a snake. Rather, it was exploratory coming together for the first time of two invisible individualities, of two states of mind, of two puzzled and wondering kinsfolk who are about to discover that they really are related in the great plan and purpose of life. From the moment that Miss Riley first saw the big snake, she had been silently talking across to it. Outwardly, she appeared to be doing nothing at all. Actually, she was proving the potency and effectiveness of her favorite rule of action in all relationship contacts, that all life, regardless of its form, classification, or reputation, will respond to genuine interest, respect, appreciation, admiration, affection, gentleness, courtesy, and good manners. (laughs) The big tail rattler was being lovingly showered with these qualities, undoubtedly for the first time in its existence. So I I don't have time to read a lot more, but what happens then um, is that eventually the snake... uh, relaxes and stretches out on the table towards her and lets her um, pet it. And it's all through, his description is metta, right? It's all through that power of metta. So since this is a true story and it's um, contemporary, maybe I have to reevaluate my thoughts about the, the Buddha stopping the mad elephant. actually decided to try it myself once. I was, um, <laughs> I, I like to sit near a marsh in the woods, and this summer there was a, a, before the marsh disappeared, one day I was, go- I was gone traveling for a week, and I came back, and I walked up to the marsh, and it was gone. There had been a, uh, the beaver dam had broken. And it was so interesting, it was like impermanence, right? I'm like, No. This marsh is not gone. It took me, you know, it took like a while to be like, oh, it's actually gone. I loved that marsh. I'm sad it's gone. But anyway, until then, um, the, there was a little water snake that would sometimes be around where I was sitting, and it kind of scared me. I, I don't really like snakes. And um, so I, I practiced sending it metta one day, just kind metta. It started swimming towards me. <laughs> and I was like, oh no, that isn't what I meant to have happen here. <laughs> I, I kind of jumped off back. <laughs> Who knows, it might have been coincidence. It might have been coincidence. I better move on. It's after eight already. Okay, so we're going to move on. So when this powerful heart of metta um, meets suffering then we um, have the response of compassion. So compassion is a quality of heart and mind that can soften around suffering, that's able to stay open and caring amidst the difficulties and suffering that exist in this human life. So it's a tender, caring quality of heart. And it has the the friendliness of metta, but specifically oriented towards suffering. I think of it as, I experience it as poignant and um, perhaps bittersweet. You could say the bitterness is the suffering, but the sweetness is the connection, the feeling of non-separation. 
It's really a courageous dance of the heart in the face of suffering. The courageous heart that um, has the ability to connect with suffering without getting overwhelmed. So as a Brahma Vihara, this can also be uh, developed. We focus on uh, these beings that we've been uh, cultivating metaphor. We focus on um, them and specifically focus on suffering. And then we um, see how the heart responds to that, the undefended heart responds to that. And and, and, uh, when the heart is not defended, it naturally responds with a sense of connection, care, tenderness. In our Vipassana practice, while we have plenty of suffering, most of us have plenty of suffering come up that we can um, relate to and develop compassion through learning how to relate to. So how do we relate to the pains of the body and the aches of the heart and the mind? Is there aversion, resistance, exile? Or can we soften and include and care? When meeting suffering, I sometimes say that if mindfulness doesn't cut it, try compassion. (laughs) It's not usually our first uh, inclination Sometimes it's um, compassion as a last resort. It helps to soften the edges of suffering and make it able to be born. We have such deeply conditioned ways of reacting to suffering that it takes time and patience to actually, for me it did anyway, it still does, I still explore this quality, to understand what it is. Sometimes we come come across uh, qualities that masquerade as compassion, but aren't quite it. What we call the near neighbors. Kind of looks like it, but not quite. So we might come across pity like pity for others or self-pity. And it kind of has a, it has a connecting to um, suffering and, and it has some, uh, perhaps some softening into it, but, but it also has this very, um, it's very self-preoccupied, uh, self-pity, and it has this kind of collapsing feel to it. And almost there's a, there's a delusion in there, a denial, like this shouldn't be happening to me. So that's not quite it. And then pity with others, when others are suffering pity, we're connecting, but we're separating to it. Like you over there, you have that problem, and I don't. <laughs> so that's, that separation, saying, ah, oh, that's not quite it. That's not compassion. Overwhelm and despair, those aren't compassion either. Sometimes we might think that they are. Sharon talks about, Sharon Salzberg talks about um, teaching in Russia one time in her book, her book, Loving Kindness. 
and there was a translator and she was talking about compassion and she kept getting the feeling like the, com- the, the translation wasn't quite what she meant. So she finally asked the guy, how are you translating compassion? How are you describing this? And he said, oh, I describe a state of being terribly overcome with someone's sorrow, like having a stake through your heart, your heart and having the burden of someone's pain burdening you too. <laughs> So that's like the near neighbor. That's not quite it, right? But sometimes we think it is. Sometimes we feel like to really have compassion, we should be drowning with the person. It's not an unusual understanding of it. So, so, so the, the overwhelm and the despair, that's, that's not quite it either. It's not balanced with wisdom and acceptance of this life. When you do compassion practice as a Pramavihara, you first choose somebody you know who's suffering. So it doesn't have to be one of your four favorites, you know, your, your the categories you have. You choose somebody who's suffering. So the first time I did it um, as an intensive practice, I chose a friend who was suffering from depression. And um, I just kept getting stuck or overwhelmed with sadness. I cared about her so much and I didn't want her to be depressed. And, um, and she, it was a pretty major depression she was in. And um, I had to switch people because I, wasn't, I, was, I was falling into that near neighbor of compassion. I wasn't, um, I wasn't actually cultivating compassion. I, I switched to somebody easier. I started with um, a woman at work whose husband was dying of cancer. And I liked her, but she wasn't like a really close friend. So I, I was able to kind of get more balance there and, and understand um, what, more what compassion was. It's an interesting question, like how much pain do we feel with compassion? I read in um, The Inquiring Mind, there was an interview with Dalai Lama, and they were asking about this, like, does compassion hurt? And there's some people you'll say that, some people say, like, you know, you really have to hurt if you're going to feel compassion, and other people say, like, not at all. And um, the Dalai Lama said that when you first connect with the person and their suffering, there's just a little bit of pain. And he said, but then, then like, the the quality of compassion, um, like that's that's sweet. That doesn't hurt. I found that very interesting. So we explore that for ourselves, really, that question of like how close do we get to the suffering? How do we touch it so that the heart responds but we don't go over into despair? So we can also look at how we can develop um, compassion in our Vipassana practice. So let's talk about how we might respond to suffering because we can't talk about compassion without talking about suffering. So I'll tell you about a retreat that I went on um, a couple of years ago in Burma. And it was kind of one of the retreats like Greg um, (laughs) described his retreat where it's like, oh, you know, I have... It's like I'd never been on retreat before. It wasn't quite that bad, but it was like, I really had to work. And um, so I experienced, 
incredible physical pain. It was uh, really, really um, intense. And so I noticed that my first experience, actually I didn't notice my first experience of it, because my first experience of it was I was going to anchor away from that pain, and I was not even going to know it was there. Like, that was, like, the not willing at all to meet it. And um, the style of practice I was doing, the Mahasi style, you have to go into the teacher, the Burmese master, and report on, like, what you feel on the in-breath, what you feel on the out-breath. And so I was just like, I'm going to stick to the breath here and, like, come up with my really good report and um, (laughs) not pay any attention to the pain. So our first reaction usually to suffering is, how can I avoid this? How can I not even know it exists? That's what we would prefer. But if we have to know it exists, it would be like, um, how can I avoid it? I kind of knew it was there, and the only label I had for it was unbearable. I couldn't get close enough to have a more specific label than that. It was just unbearable. So we tend to think that we're bad yogis if this is true, if this is happening. But perhaps we're just not strong enough yet to touch it, and that's okay. Perhaps the mind needs to rest. Perhaps we can even meet the need to avoid suffering. Perhaps we can even meet that with compassion. But at some point, some willingness to investigate arose. It it just happened on its own, right? I kept going. And so I would, I would approach the pain, and it was so fascinating to watch the mind. It would touch it and bounce. It was like a rubber ball. <laughs> the attention was like a rubber ball. It would touch the pain and bounce off of it, touch it and bounce off of it, the really bouncy quality. And um, I was kind of interested in that. So I didn't judge myself that I couldn't stay with the pain for a long time, I just watched the mind. It's like, oh, it's bouncing. Touch and bounce, touch and bounce. Touch, bounce, think. (laughs) That's another thing that it'll do, right? When there's suffering and we're not quite able to meet it. Break time. I think of thinking as break time sometimes. Or as I was saying to one um, yogi today, you take a breakasito. A little break. There was a question this morning about delusion and how it can seem helpful sometimes. And so there's a way that um, we go into some place that's more muddled, like thinking. <laughs> and maybe we just need to do that. And maybe we are talking about it, the teachers, uh, after the Q&A this morning. Maybe there's some wisdom in there. Like the wisdom is like, I can't really be with this much longer. So the mind goes off and to think for a while and kind of delusion land. And it's like, that, that's the break it needs. So again, can we like be just um, compassionate with like the pace of, um, of the moving closer to some of these intense things? But then slowly the willingness and capacity grew over the time of the retreat and I got to be able to more and more be able to land and stay with it and to soften around it, include it. And that's actually when it often starts to change and transform. It's when we can soften. The softening is actually what lets us be able to see 
into it to see what the truth is. Hmm. I was going to talk about karmic knots, but I don't think I have time. Some morning I'll talk about karmic knots. Compassion. Um, so we can develop compassion in our meditation practice by, by exploring how we relate to our own suffering, whether it's physical or emotional. And again, for me, it's that, it's that softening quality. It's that quality that um, instead of meeting uh, suffering with um, hardness, meets it with softness, pliability, connection, care. Compassion calls on us to be um, fully embodied in this world. It cuts through any tendency for detachment and calls on us to respond to the suffering that we meet. Thich Nhat Hanh says that um, compassion is a verb, not a noun. Compassion deeply developed compassion has this acceptance of the truth of suffering so it doesn't resist that truth but that doesn't mean that it's passive acceptance is um, sometimes called the starting point not the ending point we can think of acceptance oh okay done no how do we respond then becomes the question and the compassionate heart of course it wants to respond in this world to alleviate suffering and to bring kindness. It's such a powerful um, force in this world. A couple of months ago, I went to the climate march in um, New York City. And there were um, reported between 310,000 and 400,000 people there. It was huge. And um, there was so much love and so much compassion in that um, event. So many people who cared so deeply. I was high for days afterwards. <laughs> it took a long time to come down because there were so many people. It was so powerful to be around that many people with um, the sense of goodwill and, um, and care. And it said that um, even though there were that many people together, there was not one incident between the police and the, um, the people marching. Um, no arrests, nothing. There was no problems. That's amazing. That's the power of love and compassion that many people can gather and um, get along. (laughs) I only have a few minutes left. I think it's time for the bear story. So it was, uh, it was, I think it was in late spring, maybe April or May, but I don't remember if it was last year or the year before. When you get to be my age, they all kind of <laughs> start coming together. Um, but I was sitting in my kitchen, and uh, I was sitting in the corner, 
and a chair in the corner, and the window was right um, next to me, close enough that I could touch it, a very low window that I could touch it. And um, I was doing something on my iPad, and I heard some commotion in the yard, and I ignored it. I had this vague sense maybe it was a bear, but bears come in our yard often enough. It's not that big a deal. And so um, then I'm standing there, uh, still doing something on my iPad. I, I hear this scratching on the side of the house. So I turn and look, and there's this bear with its snout on my window. So it's close enough that if the window wasn't there, I could touch its nose. It was a very old bear. You could, I, I couldn't see much. It was dark. But our eyes locked for a second. And the eyes were very old. And deep pools of suffering is what I saw. And there was a sense of um, this bear transmitting like the just levels and levels of suffering that there is in this world. But also, this part I probably made up on my own side, <laughs> but um, um, the fact that we bear it all. And then something evolutionary <laughs> kicked in that said, it, it, it's not good to be looking into bear's eyes from three feet away. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I didn't think it out, but, but something evolutionary was like, ah! <laughs> so, um, <laughs> like locking eyes with a bear like that far away. Ah! So um, I jumped up, and I'm sure Mr. Bear went on his way too. Um. Hmm. <laughs> he taught me something. What I'd like to end with is um, just leaving us with this sense that metta and compassion uh, give us the strength to really touch what's vulnerable within, or what's or this vulnerable human conditioning that does include so many, so many levels of suffering. Another story to end. Um, so a year or two ago, I was asked to teach a metta class at a um, nearby college, and so I spent some time thinking about what was the things I wanted to say to the to the young people about metta. And then as I finished, I went um, to the window. I have a bird feeder at the window. I like to watch birds and feed them. And I don't know what I was going to do. I can't remember. Maybe I was going to fill the bird feeder or something. But I go to the window, and... Uh, there's a goldfinch on the feeder eating. And I, uh, I start opening the window kind of quietly. The goldfinch just stays there. It's like, okay. So then um, I start reaching my hand out towards the goldfinch. And it stays there. And then I reach out and pet it, pet its back. And it was all, it was so delicate. It was all feathers and air. Just petted it for a little while, kept eating. (laughs) 
A friend suggested that perhaps the bird was ill. (laughs) But it didn't seem ill. Another possibility is that the... um, You're not going to go with that version, are you? (laughs) Another possibility since I'd just been planning this metta class, right, I was feeling lots of metta. Another possibility is that the power of metta lets us touch things that are fragile and tender. And that the power of metta and compassion let us connect deeply with this fragile and tender life. That's the way I like to look at it. Let's sit for a minute. May the power of metta and compassion widen the capacity of our hearts and our minds so that we can touch all the joys and all the sorrows of this human life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.